Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. This morning, I am so excited to be beginning a new book, a new book in your Bible, Luke, Volume 2, a.k.a. the Book of Acts. Luke, the physician who wrote the Book of Luke that we just finished last week, wasn't finished. He had more to say, and many people would speculate in the days when Luke was writing this treaty, this, this record, this logos, word of God, the gospel telling about the life and activity of Jesus Christ came to an end last week with Jesus encouraging his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're going to pick up at that place in those days, very likely, this would have been written on a scroll. That was standard operating procedure. And the papyrus scrolls that they used would become really unwieldy or extremely cumbersome. If you were to take about a 35-foot scroll, which is about the maximum length that we find from antiquity, after that point, they were just too big and bulky. And it's very possible that he got to the end of his 35 feet and said, I'm not done. I have to write more. And so he writes the book we know as the book of Acts. Uh, it's some Bibles uh, in a King James or some of the Bibles, you might hear it referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. And indeed, it does talk about the apostles, those who were commissioned and sent out into the world to take the good news of the kingdom of heaven to the far ends of the world, and this, this, this uh, describes that. Uh, the first half talking about Peter in uh, chapters 1 through 12, and then the second half about Paul in chapters 13 through 28, but uh, we're going to get into a little bit more of that detail as, as we get going, but just now as we're coming into this book of Acts, while it's called the Acts sometimes of the apostles, I really think of it more as the acts or the witness of the Holy Spirit. That's that promise, the promise of the Father that Jesus told his apostles to wait until you are endued with power from on high to be my witnesses. We'll get there as we go through this. But that really is the next volume, the next scroll. As Jesus will ascend into heaven, he'll leave us, he'll leave the earth, he'll leave humanity, mankind, a witness in his church, indwelt by his Holy Spirit. So this really is the acts or the actions or the activities of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' church, okay, as we go on through here. Um, I love the idea of the Holy Spirit as we see it brought forward here. The Holy Spirit, spirit, right? not specifically physical, and yet we see manifestations of the Spirit in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And some of the very common ways that we see the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, fully God, manifesting to the world in different ways, as water, as the Spirit that hovered over the waters in the first verses of the book of Genesis, the first person of the Trinity to be mentioned by name, the Holy Spirit. Water, uh, wind, the, the ruach, the breath, uh, often we see oil, the anointing, the christening of the Holy Spirit. A dove, as we see, has descended upon Jesus at his baptism, where we take our logo as the Calvary Chapel, a dove descending upon us, a picture of the Holy Spirit coming upon us. As a whisper, as that still small voice, and as fire, 
as we will see in the day of Pentecost in chapter 2, but in many other ways. And there are other aspects of the Holy Spirit. But truly, this is the Holy Spirit front and center. And it's going to deal with the first 30 years of a Spirit-filled, on-fire church. And yet what's so cool in so many ways to me is that in this, as we look at these, there will be no church government, no church boards. Sorry, guys, you're fired. <laughs> Joking. There wasn't even a New Testament. They had the Holy Scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. But what did they have? What did they have? The Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will leave you a helper. Okay? And this is how you're going to get it done. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so I'm very excited to see what we will do here. Uh, some of you that know a little bit of the history of this church, uh, we started as a Bible study. Jeff and Julie McRae called our pastor. They were friends of Gerald and Marilee Hagerman down at Joshua Springs. Joshua Springs had sent us out to the Philippines. We were in the Philippines when we got a call. Would you, when you get, come off the field, would you help start a church up in Idaho? Oh, we'll go check it out. We came up, we met Jeff and Julie, said, let's give it a go. If the Lord's in it, praise God. And we started a Bible study, which has since then grown into this church. But as we started that Bible study in June of 2012, uh, first Bible study was on Jeff and Julie's deck. Many of you have been there for our baptism days and family camp and all that. But after that, we started having it in our front yard under the old, in the shade of the old elm tree on the lawn furniture. And the first book, the place we stepped off, that first Bible study, once upon a time, was the book of Acts. We want to see what God does. What happens when Jesus shows up? What happens when Christians, anointed by the Holy Spirit, go forward? If God's in it, praise God. If not, we'll go find something else. We never found something else. Here we are today. Amen? So I'm excited. This book of Acts, it's so fun in so many levels. You know, I told you the outline. Basically, uh, we get this from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is the outline for the whole book, really, in one verse. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's how the book of Acts lays out. It begins in Jerusalem, tarry, until you're endued by the promise of the Father. And then it's going to move out of Jerusalem into the surrounding region of Judea and Samaria as we go on through, uh, up through verse 12. And verse 13, it picks up with Paul and Barnabas, and they go out on some missionary journeys. And 13 through 28, they go across the... Uh, Asia Minor into Turkey and over into Europe and we see Corinth and Rome and all these different places that are recorded in the book of Acts. All the way to end of chapter 28, we, we, we leave with Paul in Rome. But I often love to share with people and sometimes I'll tease and I'll joke, uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 29. Don't do it. It's not there. <laughs> but I say that because it doesn't end at chapter 28. In fact, the outline that I just gave you to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end, that's the word eschatos. It's not a geographical end. It's not like you went around the planet and told everybody on the planet. This is a word, eschatos, which means a last state or last things. There's a study within the body of Christ. We give it a $5 word. We call it eschatology. 
Eschatology deals with the last things, the end days, prophecies that concern the days that we live in. And that is what the outline of the books of Acts is. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to the last days. That's us. That's Acts chapter 29. We're writing the story as we sit here this morning. So it's very cool in that way. Now, in this, we talked about Luke, Luke the physician. And Luke the physician, we read about him in a couple places in Colossians chapter 4, 14, 2 Timothy 4, 11, Philemon 24, Paul always making references to Luke. Now, Luke we met in and we will meet, I should say, in Acts chapter 16. While Paul is out on the mission field, all of a sudden, the author of the book of Acts changes pronouns. No, not like they do nowadays. <laughs> but up until chapter 16, he kept referring to Peter and Paul and Philip, and Stephen, and all these characters that he's talking about is they and them. But in Acts chapter 16, he starts using the pronouns we and us. Because it's at Acts chapter 16 that Luke joins the team. And the idea being here, as he's writing, we know he's a physician, but you have to understand in Jesus' day, in Luke's day, in the early church, physicians were just, it was a trade. You were there to help people with their ills and injuries and whatnot. And Paul had a boatload of ills and injuries. Just take off his shirt and look at his back. How many times he was broken and bruised and stoned and thrown in jail. And he needed somebody to pick him up and heal him. And this is Luke. He came along in those days. I'm going to open up in verse 1 through 4, and then I'm going to back up to something. The former account I made, that is the gospel of Luke, the former logos, the former story, the former account I made, O Theophilus, not the ugliest, actually in so many ways the most beautiful, Theo the Greek word for God, and philos from the word phileo, love. And Theophilus, his name literally means lover of God, friend of God. We saw that same name used when he opened up in the Gospel of Luke. He starts off in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, "...inasmuch as many as taken in hand to set in order..." a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled amongst us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things, from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So both of these scrolls, the Gospel of Luke, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, written so that we would know with certainty from eyewitnesses the things that we have been taught, addressed to, again, Theophilus. Now, again, back in the day, physicians, just like many people, actually in those days were generally slaves. Not like your doctor, right, who charges you an arm and a leg just for a visit. These people were under the employee, if you will, but generally even under the ownership of a slave. He'd keep them around, and if he needed a tonic or if he needed a therapy or whatever he needed, he would just tell the slave to do that. And this is likely what happened is that Luke would have been assigned to Paul. This lover of God saw Paul needed help, and he said, I got a doctor. Why don't you take him along for the ride? That's one speculation. We don't know really a whole lot about Luke, but we do know that he was probably of Greek descent, not born a Jew, by his name. It's a Greek name. It's not a Jewish name. 
And we know that he was a physician. This is mentioned as we go through the story. So he was able to heal and treat people. And he was attached to Paul. In fact, many people would look at the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, much of the witness up to Acts chapter 16 coming from other people who were out in the field with Peter and Philip and Stephen and all those guys. And then finally, when Luke joins the team, he hears all these stories directly from Paul. And many people would say the Gospel of Luke and Acts is really Luke, the physician, a learned man, writing down and recording all the things through the eyes of Paul, the major source of this information. But not just that, Luke was there. He was a witness. He went there and did that. And so it could be that he was a physician assigned to Paul on the mission field, and that's why we get this record. Or it could be, and this is another idea, it says in the Gospel of Luke in the beginning, O most excellent Theophilus. Now, that title, most excellent, is usually reserved for dignitaries to honor somebody, such as a judge or as a political leader. And it's caused some to speculate that maybe what happened here is that Luke, who joined up with Paul, went with him, traveled with him, helped heal him up, get him down the road. The, God, the, the book of Acts ends at chapter 28 with Paul still awaiting a trial. And some have speculated that maybe Luke gathered together all of these things, the gospel, all about Jesus, and then moving on into the church, all about the church, as basically a disposition or deposition for the courts of this is who Paul is, this is why he is on trial, this is who Jesus is, this is what the church is, this is what the results of going out in the name of Jesus Christ is all about, oh, most excellent Theophilus, okay? So, I, I, I throw all of those things out to you. I know uh, generally we're in the habit of going verse by verse and just breaking out the verses and make sure we understand what the scriptures said now I'm talking a little bit of background for you, but sometimes it makes it interesting as we go forward to, to kind of get an idea, where does this come from and why, why did they pick that story to share and not that story to share because all the Gospels don't match, you know? Different guys have different perspectives, different events they witnesses and those kinds of things. But here we have Luke, volume two, the Spirit of Christ, okay? The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen through the Holy Spirit. And I love this, that in Jesus, fully God, fully man, and yet he never did anything that could not have been done in the power of the Holy Spirit. He came to live as a man. He threw off his royal robes, all of his royal privileges to live amongst us as we live, yet indwelt by the Holy Spirit that we could see what a spirit-filled life would be. Even in Jesus' declaration back in Luke chapter 2, or I mean in chapter 4, his first sermon, uh, he quotes out of the... Uh, the, the book of Isaiah, the Lord has anointed me. He has christened me. He has put his Holy Spirit on me that I would be a witness and set captives free and, and give sight to the blind and declare the acceptable day of the Lord. But he did it in the power, the chrism, the Christ of the Holy Spirit. And here he says... He was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandment to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And this is one of the linchpins that holds both books together, the kingdom of God. 
That's been the message from the beginning, and it's going to be the message all the way till we get there. Hallelujah. It's all about the kingdom of God. After he had suffered, after he had been crucified, buried in the grave three days, rose again, he was there. We read about a little bit of that last week in Luke, right? There's Mary Magdalene and the women going to the tomb that morning. There's Peter and John running to the tomb. There's a witnesses to the road of Emmaus. There's that evening, everybody's gathered in the upper room and he comes in and presents himself. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 of all the people who had witnessed Jesus, even his brother James, and it says, and 500, many of whom are still alive today. At the time that Luke was writing this for Theophilus, or as a magistrate for a court deposition, or simply as a gift to somebody who loved God so much, he was sure to help them see what is transpiring through the work of Jesus Christ in their lives. And so, many infallible proofs, people that were still alive at the day, at the time of Luke's writing, right? How many of you guys believe that we had a founding father by the name of George Washington. By show of hands, anybody believe that? Most of you don't believe it. That's interesting. I'm, we need to pray right now. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> Help us see. George Washington. I've never met the guy, but I believe he existed. Why? because of the record of the witnesses. Most of us would say you'd have to be a fool not to believe that there was a George Washington who was the founder of our country, yet we've never seen him. Much as Thomas missed Jesus that first night that we read about in Luke, unless I put my fingerprint in his hand or thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Jesus says the next week, okay, Tom, here's your turn. Go for it. And Thomas says, my Lord, my God. And Jesus says, blessed are you who have seen, but more blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. We've got the testimony. We've got the record. That's what this is all about. Theophilus, lover of God. And I love that, right? Because we don't know who Theophilus is, but any of you who say, I am a Christian, I love God, you are, we are, Theophilus, and we have this testimony that Luke has given us. Hallelujah. For 40 days, speaking the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Verse 4, and being assembled together with them. So this is Jesus now and those he had called, his chosen, the apostles, the disciples. We're going to see in just a couple of minutes here about 120 that we're still hanging around. We've got more than that in this building today. But this is where it started, with a small group of believers being assembled. And that word assembled is the word for church. The Greek is ekklesia, and that's what it means. Those who have been called together, assembled together. Jesus, when he was with his disciples, he was in Caesarea Philippi, and he was preaching to them, who is it that people say that I am? And they said, oh, Elijah, one of the prophets, so on and so forth. And then Jesus would say, but who do you? Who do you say that I am? And Matthew makes the great de declaration, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replies, blessed are you. Or that was Simon, Peter, not Matthew. It's recorded in Matthew 16. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, but this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood. You didn't come up with that on your own, but my Father in heaven has revealed it to you. And I say this, upon this, I, this rock, this confession of faith, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, upon this rock, this confession, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. My church, those who I have called, those who have come to the shepherd, those sheep who hear his voice and respond, that is my ecclesia, my church, my assembly. And so here we're seeing 
the Holy Spirit front and center, the body of Christ front and center. And this is that work that's going to come forward. Verse 4, or verse four and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Pretty short sermon, being assembled together. He tells them to wait for the promise of the Father. Does that mean you're going to bring the kingdom to Israel now? Now, just a small side note, a little, a little housekeeping for the church for a moment. Jesus didn't say, what are you talking about Israel? I'm done with Israel. Those are the guys that crucified me. There's no Israel. Do you see that there? No, in fact, his very answer implies that, in fact, I have work to do with Israel. Yes, you are my church. You are those assembled together in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth till the last days. But I'm not done with Israel. That's a small housekeeping note for you all. But backing up, he says, to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. When did they hear about this promise of the Father? I handed out in your bulletin a little worksheet of verses that can help you identify what Jesus is talking about right here. In Luke chapter 24, Luke had just said about the promise of the Father in Luke 24, 46, he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in, the, in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. These are the last words he says to them. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but Tarry, wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Till God grants it to you. Till God pours it upon you. Now, that same time that we just read in Luke chapter 24, this is the upper room or where the disciples were gathered on the day of his resurrection after they found the tomb was empty, after the women came back with the port report, after Peter and John came back with their report, after the disciples that ran to, or went to Emmaus and ran back and said he's alive, after Jesus comes into the house and he says, touch and feel me. I'm not a spirit. I'm body, soul, and spirit. I'm completely resurrected. After that, in the Gospel of John, he, he says to them, uh, verse 19 of John chapter 20. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, churched up, you could say, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, this is that night, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus, the great missionary from heaven to earth, that we might go from earth to heaven. He came to bring that good news of the kingdom. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. You're being sent. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. That's the word pneuma, 
the breath, the wind of the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a command. That's God telling his followers, receive that. I've given it to you. And they did. Because when God commands it, it happens. Receive the Holy Spirit. And they were born again. That's what happens when somebody comes to the place in life where they realize they didn't create themselves. They're not much of a script writer in trying to write their own story. No matter how they seem to write the script, it keeps turning out different. Somebody else is pulling the strings here. They understand they're not God, but there is a God, and they realize that we're accountable to our maker and that we've fallen short of the glory of God, and we need to repent. We need to confess our sins and allow him to forgive us our sins through the finished work on the cross and become believers, followers, disciples of his. And in that process, as we confess Jesus as Lord, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And just as we did in communion this morning, not only do we accept the body broken for us, his blood shed for us as down payment that all of our sins, as far as east as is from west, have been buried at the cross of Calvary. We're forgiven. We're white as snow. But not only that, are we now emptied of our self, emptied of our junk, we're filled with His Holy Spirit. And every person who confesses Jesus as Lord has His Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, living in us, dwelling in us. He's taken up resident with us. So he breathed on him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But tarry, tarry for the promise of my Father, which will come upon you. Now, this isn't the first time that we've read it. Jesus clearly said it in the upper room. Back in the Old Testament, there's a number of places that talk about a time when God would send His Holy Spirit. A classic example is out of the book of Joel in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward, after all the things that are happening in the New Testament up to Jesus Christ, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my maidservants and, uh, men servants and maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. It's about to happen. This is 40 days after his resurrection. And in 10 more days, as they tarry in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit will be poured upon them. They've already received it. They're already born again. But there's more that God wants to do than just pull you out of the fire. He wants to send you out. Examples we see in the Gospel of John, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, as they're having a conversation, he asked for a cup of water. And she says, why, why are you asking me? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water I give him will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Remember, water is one of these symbols, one of the types, one of the pictures of the Holy Spirit. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Going on in, John, in John's Gospel, chapter 4, Jesus would answer, The hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Going on in John's Gospel, chapter 7, He's at the Feast of Tabernacles now. And on the last day, the great day of that feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, 
let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He spoke this concerning the Spirit, whom those believing him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. As long as Jesus was there with them, he would do things for them. But there came a day where they would need the Holy Spirit. We see this coming up in the upper room. Just a real quick side note. This verse out of John chapter 7, uh, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water or spring forth rivers of living water. That's our namesake. That's why we are the springs, Calvary Chapel, because Jesus is our source. The Holy Spirit indwells us and overflows us and flows forth out of us, individually springs corporately as this church into the community. We are those witnesses filled with His Holy Spirit into the world. In the upper room, just a couple days earlier, 40 days earlier, or 42 or 3, right? In the upper room, before He was crucified, Jesus would say to these disciples in John chapter 14, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper. Now, this is not to say that some different kind of helper, that word for another means one just like me. A helper just like Jesus, God, must be a helper God, because Jesus is God. So in order for this helper to be just like him, this helper has to be God. This is the mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But he says he'll pray and you'll get a helper. That word for helper is parakletos. Para means to come alongside. Kletos means helper or comforter, guide, teacher. Jesus says, I'm going to pray. I'm going to send this helper to you that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells in you or with you and will be in you. Just want to point out a couple words here. With you, the Holy Spirit will be with you and in you. I'm going to circle back to that in just a minute here. Um, but he's going to tabernacle with you. That is to say, he's going to set up his tent with you. We see this uh, reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 at verse 16. We read, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? This is one of the ways we know we're born again, signed, sealed, and delivered because God has given us of his Holy Spirit, and he tabernacles with us. And then John, in that upper room, going on in chapter 14, he says, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. I'm telling you these things before I go away so that you won't wonder what happened. I'm not leaving you orphans. I'm sending you another helper, another comforter, another guide, like I have been for you. Then going on into John chapter 15, he continues to say, this is still in the upper room as he's teaching on the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, 15, and 16 are one of the best passages in the Bible if you want to put together a picture of who the Holy Spirit is. As I said clearly from Genesis chapter 1, the first person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is mentioned, and he's all through the Bible in types and figures, and we see the Holy Spirit everywhere from end to end. But John chapter 14, 15, and 16 is a really good place to study about the Holy Spirit. So again, in chapter 15, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, but when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. This is part of that promise of the Father, that when I'm no longer here with you, because I'm going to heaven, I will leave you 
the Holy Spirit, and it will be as though I was with you. He will be the one testifying, giving witness to me, explaining me, helping you to understand who I am. Even though I am in heaven, you'll have him right in your heart. He will testify of me. And then going on into chapter 16, continuing to talk about the Holy Spirit to his disciples. He says, but now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Oh, we don't want you to leave, Jesus. We like you. Stay here, please. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. That still small voice, that whisper that says, uh-uh, uh-uh-uh, that's not right. He'll convict you of sin. He'll also convict you of righteousness. <gasps> this is a good idea. Do this. Do that. And he's talking to you, that whisper. Sin of righteousness and judgment. He'll remind you there is coming a day we're going to answer to God. And it's going to keep us pointed north. It's going to keep us pointed heavenward. It's one of the gifts I think one of the best gifts of the Holy Spirit, conviction. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. People, I don't like to be convicted. You don't like to be condemned. There's a difference. Condemnation is when the enemy of our soul, Satan, puts all these thoughts in our word. Oh, you're a loser. You think you got saved. You're nothing. You're trash. You're garbage. Nobody could forgive you. You're not worthy. And you get all these darts thrown at you. And these are all condemnation, trying to tear you away from God, trying to tear you down, trying to ruin that work which God began in you, and it will be faithful to complete it. But nevertheless, we get condemnation. It's, it's really from the word with damnation. You're, you're being damned. Nobody wants that. That's the devil. You know how to tell the difference between con condemnation and conviction? It's important. The conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. Conviction will not push you away from God, will not tear you down, will not lie to you and deceive you. Conviction will turn you towards God, towards repentance, towards righteousness, towards goodness. And it's a wonderful gift to be convicted when you're about to do something and you get that, uh, 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 uh. That's the Holy Spirit helping you. He's a gentleman. He's not going to force you. He's not going to twist your arm. He's not going to turn you into a robot and you instantly just do everything to make him happy. But he will be with you and he'll always give you that moment. And if you will listen, this is why it's so important as a Christian just to walk humbly. Not in pride, not in our own power, not in our own might. We've got to walk by the Spirit in that still, small voice. And he will lead us and guide us and teach us and bring us to life. He goes on to say, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment of sin because they do not believe, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Satan's going to be taken out. Hallelujah. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit lets you know. There's going to come a day and this is going to end. You're going to be in heaven. There will be no more sin. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. I am going to finish this work that I began. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Now, that's to say he's part of the Trinity. And Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each individual, complete personalities, but completely one in purpose and in word. And you'll never get the Holy Spirit telling you to do something against what the word of God or the witness of Jesus has already laid out for us. There will always be harmony. He won't speak on his own and give you some weird truth. And this is a thing that happens in the church. People get the Holy Ghost and Jesus told me to 
go steal that car. That is not the Holy Spirit, okay? You can always check that it's the Holy Spirit because you've got His Word. And you can lay it up against the Word and see that it works. And He will tell you things to come. Last days. What's going to happen in the world in front of us. And He will glorify me. He'll always point to Jesus. If you ever wonder if this is a work of the Holy Spirit... If you're having a conversation with somebody and it's led by the Holy Spirit, one fingerprint of the Holy Spirit, one way to always check, is this the Holy Spirit? It'll always point to Jesus. I can't tell you how many times I get in conversations with Christians, uh, theologians, seminarians, people who are wise, in the scriptures, they know them inside out, front to back. And we can talk until we're blue in the face. And at some point, I'll just have to say, you know, I, I hear all your arguments, but where's Jesus? What, what, how is this showing me, glorifying, magnifying Jesus to me? Or is it just some vain trip where you're building yourself up on how much I know. The Holy Spirit will never do that. He will glorify me. All things my, the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, He will take of mine and declare it to you. So there's always going to be complete unity and complete harmony between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You'll be safe in His hands. Now, I alluded to it earlier. There are three main ways that we see the Holy Spirit manifest in the world and in our lives. And there are three Greek words that we've seen demonstrated already here. I'm going to bring them out for you. They're the words para, en, and epi. Para means to come alongside as that helper, that guide, that person who takes your hand and says, walk with me, okay? Para, alongside. For example, and, and uh, I should say, and N, E-N, is like our English word in, I-N, okay? Where the Holy Spirit comes alongside you and the Holy Spirit comes inside you. Para and N. And finally, epi. Epi, which is to say, comes over you. Or better yet, even as we see it in action, overflowing you because the Holy Spirit at that point has been outside of you, guiding you, leading you, teaching you, drawing you to Christ until you receive Christ as your Lord and the Holy Spirit comes in you. And then the Holy Spirit not only is in you, leading you, teaching you and guiding you, but then the power of the Holy Spirit begins to fill you and overflow flow you and, 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 and come out of you like fountains of living water, like springs, where you are now a vessel of Christ's grace, of His Holy Spirit proceeding forth with you. I read from John chapter 14, one of the upper room passages. It says, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. So they're not going to get this. The world's not going to understand it. But as a Christian, you will get it. You can't not get to it. Sometimes it happens and you don't understand it. It might take a little while to go, wow, where did that come from? I'm terrible at memorizing scripture, but I had to talk to that guy and all of a sudden these verses came into my head. What's that all about? That's the Holy Spirit in you, leading you, guiding you, bringing remembrance of all things. So he says, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, but you know him, for he dwells with you. Para, he dwells alongside you. He's always there. He's always in the world. He's always out there trying to bring people to heaven, to the Father, to the Son. He dwells with you and will be N-E-N, -E -N, in you, 
Okay, this is what Jesus was teaching his disciples that night in the upper room. Two ways that the Holy Spirit will work in your life. We see throughout the Old Testament how often the Holy Spirit would come along and even through a manifestation of fire or water or wind or these types of things would influence people, come alongside them and, and guide them and, and, and lead them, much as the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God, that pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, a manifestation of God's very presence there in the middle of the camp of Israel, leading them through the wilderness. And He will come alongside you, but not in you yet. And in fact, it's not until after Christ's resurrection, we read that in John chapter 7, you'll be filled with fountains of living water, but not yet. First, He will have to be crucified. But then, after He ascends to heaven, I'll send the Holy Spirit to you, and the Holy Spirit will come in you. And that night, after His resurrection, in the upper room, that's when He took His disciples and breathed on them and said, Receive, let the Holy Spirit come into you. I've already buried the sins, the work is finished, and now it's time to move on in the power of the Holy Spirit, receive the Holy Spirit. And then finally, this morning, in verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, epi, cover you, come over you, overflow you, fill you, and full flow out. The Holy Spirit has come upon you. Then you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In the book of Ephesians, a wonderful passage. It comes in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. I take a phrase out of that. But Paul encourages the church to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that be filled is in the present active tense, which is to say to be continually filled. Like when you go to the gas station, right? Any of you ever bought a car before? Did it come with a tank of gas? No? Okay. I got a car. It came with a tank of gas. But what happened when I ran out of gas? Man, that was expensive, and I only got to go about 500 miles. What do I do now? Buy another car? That's stupid. What do you do? You fill it back up, okay? It needs continual refilling. And that's what this word in Ephesians 5.18 says, to be filled, or to be being filled continually. You need that continual filling of the Holy Spirit. It must be pouring upon you and out of you and just working in the power of the Spirit. And this is that picture of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So he, he comes alongside, he comes into you, and then he works his way through you. And in this, I have uh, on your handout three distinct baptisms that we see in the scripture. We're going to do a baptism in a couple minutes. We're going to go on down to the river and we're going to baptize in water, okay? This is modeled for us in the church. It's one of the two ordinances that Jesus commands the church to do, communion and baptize, baptisms. He would say his last words before he went into heaven, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. In the authority and the power of Christ, we're commanded to baptize. Baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, and continue the work through discipleship, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. And you don't have to do it by yourself, because lo, I'll be with you always. To the end of the age, you'll have the Holy Ghost. Okay, but we're commanded to baptize in water. And yet there are other baptisms spoken of in the Bible. One of them is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, for example, in Matthew chapter 3, in verse 11, I, this is John the Baptist speaking in Matthew 3, I, John the Baptist, indeed baptize you with water. Right? 
where you go under the water, baptizo, to be immersed, to be dunked. It's a picture of dying to yourself, being buried, and then resurrected in new life as you come up out of the water. That's what baptism is a picture of. He says, indeed, I baptize you with water unto repentance, a changed way of life. You went in a dead old stinky sinner. You came out a child of God, heaven bound. Okay, I indeed baptize you with water into repentance, but he, speaking of Jesus, who is coming after me, is mightier than I. You mean there's more than baptism with water? A lot more, actually. He says, mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay, and, and in this we see water... Baptism is a picture of obedience. Go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a command. And we obey the command and we receive the baptism just as Jesus was baptized. Jesus had no sins. He didn't need to be washed or cleaned up or any of those kinds of things. He said, let us do it that all righteousness might be fulfilled. It's the right thing to do. It's a picture, it's a confession of who you are in this world. You've renounced your old life, and now you're walking on towards heaven. And that's why we do it, that all righteousness might be fulfilled. But with the Holy Spirit, it's a picture of power. We're going to get to that in just a minute as we wrap this up. Holy Spirit power. We read in uh, chapter, or verse 8 here, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That word for power is dunamis. And dunamis is the word through which we get modern words like dynamic or even dynamite. Power. The power of the Holy Spirit. You will receive power. Who wouldn't like power? Raise your hand. Uh, I know. You guys, you're, you're shy of raising your hands. You don't know what I'm going to trick you into, right? I'd like power. We'd all like power. I wish I could do this better. I wish I could do that. I wish I had more self-discipline. I wish I had all this blah, blah, wish, 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 wish. God has already given us his Holy Spirit, and it is sufficient. And there is power to resist sin. We read in 1 Corinthians 10 that wherever there is a temptation, he has made a way of escape. That gentleman, that Holy Spirit whispers in your ear, go this way, don't go that way. Keeps you out of trouble. You just have to listen. That's power, but we think of power like an atomic bomb. I want power, power. And a lot of times the power that God gives us is the power to lay down our lives just as Jesus laid down his life and the power to take it up again in new life, in obedience to Christ. And so this is the power, and it's power to be witnesses that's why he gives you the power, not so you can be cool, not so that you can be famous, not that, so you can be rich. I want power, man. I want to be president of the world. I want power. That's not what he gives you power for. He gives you power to be witnesses. A witness, that word that we see here in verse 8 is martus. It's where we get the word you're familiar with, martyr. He gives you the power to be a martyr. Yeah, sign me up. But it's because we don't understand the idea of a martyr. A martyr literally is somebody who lives their whole life sold out for a cause. Everything they say, everything they do, everywhere they go, it's all about their belief system. I know some martyrs for the Republican Party or for the Democrat Party or for other social causes. It's all, they're all about that. They live it, breathe it, eat it. And as a net result, because that's what their life is all about, it might even require them to die for it. You believe that so much that you're willing to die for it? That's what a martyr is. You're going to need power. You're going to need power to die for the cause of Christ. Because that, that, that sin nature, that flesh, that old man in you, it's always going to dog you all the way to eternity, right? We're in the sanctification phase of life. 
That's what Dallas likes to call it, sanctification. Being a set aside, being made holy, but we're not there. It's a work, a, a work in progress. We get to heaven and, and sanctification's over. It's glorification, no more sin, no more sorrow. This is heaven, this is groovy. But until then, we're going to need power to overcome, first and foremost, ourselves. We'll need that power. But that's what the Holy Spirit is going to bring you, that, that, that baptism. And that baptism, you will be immersed and overflowing with power that you can go out and tell the world about Jesus. Tell the world about somebody who loved you so much. Stinky, ugly, the ugliest, the ugliest, Theophilus. Somebody who loved you so much that no matter where you were in life, he would come to you. And he would take you by the hand and lift you up and say, follow me. I've got the power. And the power of fire, or the baptism of fire. And to be clear, this is a baptism where the scripture says Jesus has his winnowing fan in hand, that he's going to burn up all the chaff and just save the wheat aside. And that's a picture of the power of God, the baptism, the, the persecutions, the tribulations, the things in life that God brings into our life, soaks them in it, immerses in it, and the whole idea is to burn out the junk, the chaff. And we need that baptism as well. Now, all of these baptisms can happen simultaneously. You can confess Jesus as Lord. Believe that he's your savior, he's risen from the dead, and you are born again, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, you're baptized with fire, you're clean, you're good to go, but for most of us, it's an ongoing process. I bought the car, I drove 500 miles, and it stopped going. What do I need to do? Fill up. I need more, okay? I know I've gone over time here. We're going to have to close this one up. I'll just finish off the page that I've handed out to you. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, fully God, indwelling you. In Ephesians chapter 1, I love that passage. It's a good one to read over and over and over again, just to know how blessed you are. Do you know how blessed you are? Read that. It's a, it, 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 wrap your head around how blessed you are. But one of the blessings, it says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. <laughs> Amen. Worship team, come on up. We're going we're gonna to close this out. Sealed in the Holy Spirit. It's like an engagement ring. It's like when somebody proposes, would you marry me? Would you be my bride? And she says yes. And what does the guy do often? Puts a ring on her finger. What is that ring? It's a symbol. It's a promise. You're my bride. We are going to spend forever together. And this is what Jesus does when he sends his Holy Spirit. It's that deposit. It's that guarantee. It's that engagement ring that says, while I know we haven't yet had the wedding, you've got the ring. And the day is coming where we're going to be united forever together in eternity in heaven. Until that day, if you ever forget how much I love you, what I did for you, and what I'm going to do for you, that I'm coming back for you. Look at the ring. Look at the Holy Spirit. Look at the witness inside you, the conviction, the hope, the joy, the peace that passes understanding, the witness of God, that you are a temple and you are indwelt by him. And he's not finished with you. He's continuing to do that work because you've got the Holy Spirit. He's the comforter. He's your helper. He's your guide. He's your teacher. He's a seal, a promise, a guarantee. He's power. He's life. He's God. And he dwells in you. 
I'm going to kind of wrap up there. You see something about spiritual gifts that comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Holy Spirit doesn't only just come in you and do all those things. He gives you gifts. Gifts that He chooses you get. And you get and you get. In fact, you all get. We all get gifts. We get gifts when He decides it's time to give us a gift. And He gives us a gift because He's trying to help build us all up. And you might not get the same gift as she did. And your gift might not happen every day. It might happen that day because that's the day you need it. But he will give you his presence, his gift, his power, the outflowing of his spirit, the manifestation, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You will receive it as he deems necessary. But our heart's purpose is to say, Lord, I leak. I'm empty. I need more of your Holy Spirit. I need more of your grace. I need more of your joy. I need more of your hope. And he's faithful. He'll fill you back up to overflowing that you can go out into the world and share the good news of Jesus Christ, to be martyrs, to be witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit to all the world right up to the very end. Amen? Father, I want to thank you for this morning and the opportunity you've given us to just spend time enjoying your presence, enjoying your word, enjoying your son, enjoying your witness your testimony of life and what you have done for us and are doing even now in us and through us. And not only that, but overflowing to others. I pray, Lord, that we as a church, the Springs, would walk in your spirit and that we would be testimony to Habern, to Minicasha, to the ends of the earth. Help us, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, live lives worthy of your witness. Help us to bring more into your kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we do not do it as orphans. We don't do it alone. But you go with us even to the very end of the age. Thank you, Jesus. And now we pray for the baptisms. We pray for the weather. We pray you hold back the thunder and lightning that we could, oh, in obedience, follow your great commission and continue that work that you have begun in us. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www thespringscalvarychapel.org Join us in person at the Springs in Habern, Idaho or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.